You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Amen. Thank you, Dina. Thank you, Sarah. So great to see all of you. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that and can't say that. You're not here in the room with me, but I know that you're watching and listening. So for those of you who I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jay. And on behalf of our church family, we're so very glad that you're listening and joining us this morning, this afternoon. Maybe you're watching or listening to this later. It doesn't matter. Just really glad that you are with us. So for all of you jaded Oregonians, native Oregonians who say it never snows in Gresham, I, I guess we missed this week, didn't we? So hopefully, as Sarah and Dina said, you're someplace warm, safe, you're able to relax and to take some things in. And just a couple of things I want to mention to you before we start our way into God's Word. The first is, on our website, in the footer at the bottom, there's a place where you can click on the link for sermon notes. And I know some of you like to take notes. So you can click on that and you can print that PDF and that will give you notes for this morning with the ground we're going to cover in Nehemiah. And then secondly, I want to personally invite you to something that we're doing here in just a number of weeks. The elders are on Sunday, January 28th, going to be making ourselves available as a group for a question and response time just down the hallway for any of you who would like to come and be a part of that. It's a really high value to us as a leadership to be connected to you, to um, be communicative together, and this is an opportunity for us to stop and pause and not only have some time together, but give opportunity for questions, for input. We just would really value that. So we want to personally invite you as an elder team to come join us for that. You can see that that's going to be on January 28th between the services, after the first service and before the second. So I'd like to pray one more time as we prepare to dive into God's Word together. Lord, again, I thank you for each person who's listening and watching this. And together we come to you and ask that as only you can, through a demonstration of your Spirit's power, you would make your Word come alive to us. You would help us see not only how it applies to our lives, but through that same power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to live it out. Because when we choose to trust and obey you, to live life your way on your terms, there is blessing. And so, God, we ask for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we dive into Nehemiah once again, we started this series just last week for those of you who weren't with us. And with you in mind, those of you who weren't with us, or maybe you missed it somehow last week, I'd like to reset where we're going because it really does pertain to where we're headed today. So let's jump back to last week together. So last week I told you a story, a true story, mind you of how I was called into vocational ministry. In fact, I am one of your pastors today because of what happened some 32 years ago. And for those of you who were here last week, you heard this story, so I appreciate you letting me reset this for those maybe who weren't a part of last week. But 32 years ago, I was going to school at uh, Southern Oregon State down in Ashland. And the church that I was involved in at the time uh, took the high school group and the college group down to N 
Ensenada, Mexico, actually just outside of Ensenada. We had adopted an orphanage there, and they always took a coalition of the available and willing high school and collegiates to go down for spring break and to serve these orphans, to do work in the community there, to serve the community. And it really became something that we all looked forward to. I went all four years that I was a part of the church there as I was going to college. And my senior year, I found myself in a very interesting position. So since this was spring break, it was two months before I was going to graduate. So I was hopefully going to have a degree in hand. I had just gotten engaged to my longtime girlfriend, Jamie, and she was now my fiance. So I knew that we were going to get married, but I had no idea what I was going to do once I graduated. I mean, my plan was to somehow find a job that paid the bills and then just go from there and try to, try to figure things out. So it really was a defining moment and a defining season for my life. So at the time, we were going through this Bible study over the course of this trip through the very book that we're looking at once again today, the book of Nehemiah out of the Old Testament. And as we're going through this book of Nehemiah, I'm in the exact section, actually, that we're going to look at together today. And I'm sitting in this dilapidated church bus that somehow miraculously each year got us from Ashland to Mexico. And I'm sitting in this bus alone, and I'm going through this Bible study. I'm just praying and listening and reading, talking with the Lord. And I began to think about my future. What am I going to do when I graduate here in just a couple months? And so as I'm thinking about this, mulling this over, these very verses, this very passage that we're going to look at today, the Lord used really power, powerfully in my life in that moment. And I began to have this conversation with him around, well, what is it you like to do? What, what brings you joy? And up to that point, what I really found myself really loving to do was telling people about Jesus, introducing people to him, helping people grow in him. And I found myself every summer I was back home here in Portland, investing my time as a volunteer into our student ministry, into our middle school and high school students. And I just kept doing that and doing that and loved every minute of it. And so the Lord seemed to tell me that this was what he wanted me to do. In fact, I felt like it was a call into ministry. Now, for the record, I don't believe everyone who serves in vocational ministry has to necessarily be called into it, but I unmistakably was in that moment. And it was very clear. The Lord said, I want you to be a pastor. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And the reason why, the principal reason was because I was afraid. In particular, I was afraid of the resistance that I knew I would get from my parents for a number of reasons, much of it from their own journeys. They had made it really clear that they didn't want me to ever be a missionary or to be a pastor. Well, I was already on a missions trip, so there's one down. But now to consider being a pastor, it was a very scary thing for me to weigh out. I've titled the sermon today, The Rise of the Resistance, in part as a shout out to my Star Wars geeks, but also though, to talk about the reality together of the fact that when you and I choose to trust and obey the Lord, it's not a question of if, it really a is a question of when are we going to face resistance to that. 
When you and I trust and obey the Lord, we're going to encounter resistance. In fact, the Bible tells us we can expect it from three different places. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we will face resistance from, our, from what the Bible calls our flesh. That, that sinful, selfish bent that we can tend to gravitate back to that likes to make life all about us. We will war against that. We will also war against the evil one, our adversary, who wants to lock us into a life of sin and selfishness and ultimately death. But we also do battle with this world, this evil, broken system around us of systems and, quite frankly, people who are going to resist us trusting and following the Lord. And it's this last reality that Nehemiah really speaks to and that this is going to be focused on as we dive in together. And as we do this, once again, just to reset where we left off last week, Nehemiah addresses some very powerful and necessary questions of the heart. How do we keep failures, discouragements, and difficulties from defining us? The people in this story at this point in history had epically failed. It's why they were in exile. There's also this reality of living out our faith in the face of fear. How do you and I practically actually do that? What does that look like? And then finally, how do we follow the Lord when it's hard? Or how do we follow the Lord to use our language today when there is a rise in the resistance? When all of a sudden we're being opposed by other people in our life? Or even criticized or mocked or ridiculed or slandered? Because we're choosing to trust and obey God. Well, we're going to do business with all three of these questions in this passage here this morning. So before we dive into this passage, quickly picking up where we left off last week. The Jewish people have been in exile for almost 85 years now. History tells us that in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire, the second world great superpower after the Assyrians, they sweep down into Judea into Jerusalem in particular, and they, they level the city and they exile the people and they leave just a few people behind. The rest, they deport to Babylon. And one of those people was a guy by the name of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has come of age and come to power in the actual court of the Persian king. He's the cupbearer, which is a very trusted, intimate role. He drinks the king's wine before he does to make sure that no one can poison him. So only someone of high trust and high relationship could fill that role. And so Nehemiah is in this role. And in this season, he gets a report from some of the Jewish folks who had returned to the promised land with the blessing of the king, one of those being his brother. And Nehemiah's brother comes to him and gives him a firsthand report that the city is devastated. The people are living like ghosts among the rubble. It's awful. And so Nehemiah is heartbroken about that. So he spends about three months praying. And that fourth month, he's before the king serving him his wine. The king notices he's despondent, upset, asks him what's wrong. Nehemiah tells him, how can I not be when the city my, my heritage is all about, my ancestors came from, is destroyed and lying in ruins. And so the king blesses him, gives him authority, gives him resources, even gives him a military escort to return to Jerusalem 
and to rebuild the walls of the city. And that's where we pick up the story today. So let's look at this, this next passage. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, Nehemiah returning, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. And let's, let's look at what's really going on here. Who are these guys and why does it care? Why do they care? Why, does it, why do they matter in this? Well, for starters, Sambalat is the governor of Samaria, the region that's just above the city of Jerusalem. Tobiah is either his secretary or a close confidant. There are some ancient sources that suggest that he was the governor of the Transjordan, which is the area today we know as modern Jordan. So this is to the side of Jerusalem. But it says they're, they're disturbed. They're, they're, they're troubled that someone's coming to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Well, Nehemiah comes and he surveys the walls and he motivates and mobilizes the people and they begin to rebuild. And we'll look at all that next week. And so then this is what begins to happen. The, the intensity of their, of their resistance to, to uh, Nehemiah begins to get even deeper. And now there's a third person that's joined him, Geshem the Arab. It says, when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, heard that the wall was getting rebuilt, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? You ever been mocked or ridiculed? I have. If you live long enough, it'll happen to you. Doesn't feel real great. In fact, it, it hurts. And it's extremely frustrating. And you know, we live in a day and age where we have this medium, this very medium that we're able to, to come and connect with one another through today. You know, here we're coming and connecting through video. But we also have this thing called social media. And social media has connected us in a way like never before. But social media, though, has also become a mechanism, a means for anyone to say anything at any time about someone else. And there's so much mocking and ridiculing that happens through social. In fact, we have a couple generations now that are growing up in this, and they so very deliberately have to craft and curate and guard and protect their character and their reputation, even through social, because they're at risk of, of being mocked there and, and ridiculed there. And so more than ever, this is practical and applicable for, for you and me to pay attention to. How do we handle it when we're mocked and ridiculed? And if that's not enough, they're accusing Nehemiah here of, of wrong motives. And they're actually drawing upon some history here. Some 13 years earlier, another group of Jewish people who had been allowed to return to Jerusalem had tried to begin to rebuild the walls. And they had been shut down, ironically, by the very king who sent Nehemiah. And so they are mocking and reminding the people of an earlier failure once again and accusing them of rebelling against the king. And that's why the king originally shut them down 13 years earlier. He was told they were rebelling against him. So things are going to intensify here. And notice 
At first, they were troubled that someone was promoting, promoting the, the welfare of the Jews, and now, now they're angry. But it's going to go from bad to worse. Nehemiah responds to them before it gets to that point, though, and says this, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah stands his ground against them and actually intensifies the efforts to, to rebuild the wall. And this makes them angry. And we'll look at chapter 3 next week. But as we jump to chapter 4, look how they now respond. When Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. And do you know what that word angry means? Yeah, it means angry. He's furious. And he ridicules once again the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then his sidekick jumps in. Tobiah the Ammonite says, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of, of stones. So how would you react to this? How would you react to someone belittling and slandering and mocking you like this? How would I react? How does Nehemiah react? Well, he doesn't react. He responds. And there's a significant difference between the two. And this is really going to be the overlay that we work from as we look at the rest of this passage enormously important to understand the difference between reacting to something and responding to something. When I was in college, I was a resident assistant for one of those years, and I was a hall director for one of those years. And basically, I and a, two other folks, a team of us, were responsible for the physical, emotional, academic welfare of about 120 men and women who lived in those residence halls and in the residence hall that we were in. And the stories I could tell you. But one of the things that we were deliberately trained on and that was drilled into our heads was that in any given situation, you don't react, you have to respond. Because you are going to find yourself in situations where you don't know what to do. You're going to find yourself in situations where you're put in a difficult place. You're going to be put in situations where people are going to be angry with you, frustrated with you, and you have to know how to de-escalate it and how to appropriately deal with it. And the stories I could tell you, the story of the one guy who was drunk, and in some, some weeks, my entire residence hall was drunk. But the one guy who was drunk who wanted to fight me, you know, and you, you ever reasoned with someone who's drunk? It's like trying to blow out a light bulb. It just doesn't work. So how do you deal with that situation? Well, you don't react. You respond. Or the time when a skunk got loose in our residence hall, and I got woke up at, woken up at 3 a.m. because I needed to go deal with that. Or the time that my residence hall wanted to go fight another residence hall, and I was standing between these two groups of angry, drunk people who wanted to fight each other. Again, pretty important to understand the distinction between reacting and responding. How would your and my relationships go if in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, instead of reacting, 
we responded. This isn't just applicable wisdom for when you're facing down an adversary, when you're dealing with resistance, when someone is mocking you, belittling you, bullying you, someone has declared themselves to be your enemy. This is life wisdom that we're looking at here. And so Nehemiah responds, getting back to our passage here and where we're going, to this situation by refusing to retaliate. We see this consistent practice by Nehemiah over and over again. You'll see it all through the book of Nehemiah. He doesn't react, he responds, and he doesn't retaliate when he does. Even in that prayer that he just prayed, he is going to God. He's not returning their slander, their mocking, their belittling to them. And I think that's really instructive for us. He goes to God. And remember, he prays this prayer. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. What's he doing here? He is releasing it to God. And again, we see this pattern of prayer throughout Nehemiah's life. He prays for months before he gets that opportunity before the king. When he is in conversation in that moment with the king, he prays. When he's dealing with his enemies, he prays. We are to pray, and we are to pray for our enemies. But is this how we're supposed to pray for our enemies? For those who oppose us? For those who resist us, attack us, slander us? I can get on board with that prayer we just looked at. But it's more nuanced and layered than that. What we see there, yes, is something we talked about last week. Is Nehemiah not repressing how he feels, but expressing it and confessing it to God. He is lamenting. He is complaining. He is calling for justice. This is what we would call in many ways, an imprecatory prayer. We find these prayers by way of example in the, in the Psalms. But this is not the first resort of prayer. This is the last resort of this kind of prayer. Again, we have to remember the context of this. These are ancient enemies who are opposing Israel. These folks represent enemies of Israel for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And in the arc of the story here, we're not going to see any of them choose to repent. In fact, Tobiah, as you read on in the rest of Nehemiah, is a thorn in Nehemiah's side over and over and over again. So, so how do we harmonize this kind of a prayer and this kind of a response, frankly, by Nehemiah with what Jesus said in the New Testament? Because Jesus said we are to pray for our enemies, but we're to we're to pray for their repentance. We are to love them. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to not do evil, but to overcome evil with good. We're, we're not to return evil for evil, but to overcome it by, by doing good to those who wrong us. And so as we think critically about this, in Matthew 5, when Jesus is telling us about turning the other cheek, that's not about an actual fist fight. That's about being insulted by someone, mocked by someone, 
like we see going on here. And turning the other cheek means we don't return that. We don't return insult for insult. And Nehemiah doesn't return insult for insult. He stands his ground. And that's what you're doing when you turn the other cheek. You're, you're still standing your ground. So just all this being said, we pray for our enemies, first off, that they would repent, that we would be able to overcome their evil with our good, that God would work in their lives and bring them to a place where they would recognize who God is and respond to him. Abraham Lincoln was famous for saying and for living this principle out, do I not destroy my enemies by making them my friends, by leading them to repentance. And so, yes, there is a point where we have prayed for our enemies over and over again. They continue to do evil. There is a point where we do turn them over to God and we pray that God, yes, just like Nehemiah prayed here, that he'd take them out. If they're not going to repent, that he would take them off the scene, that he would remove them. But many of us want to start there as a first resort, and that actually is a last resort. So enough of that. Let's move on in the passage. So what, what happens here? So Nehemiah releases this whole situation to God, and he goes right back to building. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. So they're halfway done. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, all enemies of Israel, by the way, heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we, here it is again, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. And then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the, at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. You know, it almost sounds like a, a reach right out of Braveheart there, right? little William Wallace language, but look where things go. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. This is, this is fascinating how this is put together and this was deliberate. In the original language there, that word for afraid and that word for awesome, they are the same word. And there is a deep life principle being taught here. And it's this, remember God's power. We have to remember God's power. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. And he's drawing this very practical contrast. Are you going to fear your enemies? Or are you going to fear God? You have a choice to make. And by fearing God, we mean respecting God. He's God. We're not. 
So when he asks us to trust and obey him, if we fear him, we will do what he asks us to do because we know he loves us. He has our, he has our best in mind. But at the end of the day, this comes down to who are you going to fear the most? Your enemies or God? Will you do what God wants you to do? Will you trust and obey him? even when you're afraid, even when there are others who are resisting and opposing you. And my friends, this is the very reality that was a defining moment for me on that bus. This was the tipping point when I chose 32 years ago to follow what the Lord had for me and to go into vocational ministry and to become a pastor. I had to decide, was I going to fear God? respect God, do what he was asking me to do? Or was I going to fear the resistance that I knew would come from my parents, from some other people in my life as well? You see, the reality is God's power will empower you and me to trust and obey him and to accomplish what he's called us to do. Why? Because we looked at this reality last week. Because we have access to the king, the king of kings. Nehemiah had access to a Persian king. We have access to the king of kings. And because of that, there's another reality that we can live out. Look at what Nehemiah is up against here. We read through this in the passage earlier, but look at all these reasons for him and the people to quit. The strength of the people was giving out. There was fatigue. You ever been in a place where you've been faced with a project that is just too big? You get to the point where you feel like, I'm too tired. I can't do it. I, I, I want to quit. They were there. And the frustration with there being so much work to be done. You know, it's easy to read this story and to forget the reality that what they are up against was a monumental task. For almost 100 years, those walls had not been repaired. And when they had tried to do it 13 years earlier, they had been stopped. They basically had failed. And so there's this frustration that this is a really, really big job. How are we going to do this? And then we cannot rebuild the wall. We, we haven't done it yet. Those before us weren't able to. And then, of course, fear over and over again. Wherever you turn, they, your enemies, will attack you. They had every reason to quit. And you've been there. Some of you were there this morning. You look around at your circumstances, whatever they are, and you have every reason to quit. Some of you are tempted to quit on your marriage. It is just too hard. I'm done. I'm done. Some of you would like to quit on parenting. It doesn't matter how old your kids are. It doesn't matter if your kids are adults. Parenting is hard. And sometimes you feel like quitting. Or other family relationships. Family is really the proving ground for trusting and obeying God, is it not? I genuinely believe that if you can live out your relationship with God, your love for the Lord in your family, you can do it anywhere. Family can be profoundly difficult at times. And there are times when you want to quit. Friendships, relationships of any kind. We could just keep on going down the list here. 
it's so easy to quit. And yet what Nehemiah reminds us and really inspires us to is the reality that there is a spirit-empowered stamina and faithfulness and endurance and resiliency that is yours and mine to have through the power of God. Which brings us really to the, to the end of my story. So I told you that the Lord had made it really clear that he was calling me into vocational ministry. And I literally stand before you, sit before you, as the case may be today, 32 years later as your pastor because of this book and how God used it in my life. But the rest of the story that I completed for some of you last week was I made this decision. I told my friends. I got back to the Oregon and called my wife. Well, who was going to be my wife, my fiance, told her, and, you know, she said, great, and, but I still had to talk to my parents. And so as I'm pondering how to do that, two weeks after I get back from this trip, my executive pastor at the, my, my home church calls and says, hey, I need to meet you for lunch. He comes down all the way to Ashland, takes me out to lunch, and says, the middle school pastor just unexpectedly stepped down. We'd like you to throw your hat in the ring. I remember I had told no one about this decision that the Lord had impressed on me, and so the rest is history. I throw my hat in the ring and graduate from school, get my degree, and start work right away as a middle school pastor. But then I had to face my parents, in particular my dad. And so I had one of the most difficult conversations I'd ever had at that point in my life. So I take this job proposal, this job contract to my dad to be a middle school pastor and we have a very candid conversation about it. And when resistance begins to rise around us to trusting and obeying God, sometimes it's not overt. Sometimes it's not ridicule and mocking and slander. Sometimes it's well-intentioned people who are giving advice that isn't what God wants. And so my dad, of course, wanted the best for me. And his intentions were good, but his advice wasn't. He looked at that contract and said, this is never going to work. You can't support a family on this. You're not going to find fulfillment in this. You know, basically, it wasn't said outright, but get a real job kind of a thing. And yet I knew my dad was kind of trapped as well because he wanted the best for me. He generally wanted to support me, but he was trying to guide me away from this and doing everything in his power to make that happen. And I said, no. Dad, this is what I believe God wants me to do, and I'm going to do it. And when you trust and obey God, like Nehemiah did, when you do what God has called you to do, resistance is going to rise inevitably to that at some point, in some way, in some form. And it will be a defining moment decision as to what you're going to do. So as the story goes... I went on to be this middle school pastor. Some years later, I had my first opportunity to preach. And who is it that's sitting in the front row but my mom and my dad? Because they wanted to support me. And then when I would preach ever so often after that, they were always there. And then 18 years ago, when I came here to Grace, they would come hear me preach, especially on um, 
Christmas and uh, Easter, Christmas Eve and Easter, some of you sat next to my parents in prior years. And both of them in the last week of their life with my mom chose to receive Christ and with my dad reaffirmed Christ as his Lord and Savior. But the story doesn't always end that way. But at the end of the day, Nehemiah compels us, inspires us, informs us, teaches us, encourages us. You can do this, and so can I. You can trust and obey the Lord even when it's hard, even when you get attacked for it, mocked for it, slandered for it, when there's resistance that you never saw coming, you can still choose to trust and obey. So as we remember the example of Nehemiah, as we remember the reality that we can trust and obey the Lord in the face of uncertainty, fear, resistance, we're reminded of this this verse that we read earlier today that is so very true when we choose to trust and obey God. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. So renew your hope, rebuild your walls, trust and obey the Lord, respond to him as he leads and guides and calls you to follow him. And I want to pray his blessing over you as you do just that. Lord, I thank you for the practicality, the power, the wisdom of your word. Lord, I am so grateful that you met me in my defining moment 32 years ago, and you have given me the joy of being a pastor and the joy and blessing of being one of the pastors of this amazing church family. And Lord, I pray for defining moments for everyone who's watching and listening to this. I pray for those who have never made that defining moment decision to receive you as their Lord and Savior. Would they choose to do that? Would they choose to trust and obey you and know you as their God? Not just a God, but their God and the God. And Lord, I pray for those who do know you, who do love you, that you will help us to trust and follow you as you lead us, that you would give us the spirit-infused, spirit-compelled, spirit-empowered ability to choose faith over fear, to love those who resist you and resist us, and to be the people and the church that you've called us to be. Lord, once again, thank you for this time that we've had together to be in your word. I pray your richest blessing again over each person who is watching and listening to this, and we thank you that you are the same yesterday, the same today, and the same forever. In Jesus' name, in your name, amen. Thank you again so much for joining us, watching and listening together. We look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you. Go and live for him. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.